Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. So good to be with you. Uh, sunny. It's sunny today, and it hasn't rained or anything, right? Did it rain before? Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> La Nina. Uh, that's what Charlie does a lot, my son. He just <laughs> like yells at La Nina. <laughs> Has ruined a lot of his cricket, in fairness. Um, but yeah, like, I, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, really, really good to have you with us. We love new people. We love to connect. We love to help people find connection in Christ to a local church. We think it changes the world. If you're online, we're so happy to have you with us. We know a lot of people are online. There's a few people sick. Jacob, I see you. Be well. Looking forward to hearing you preach next week. You've got a week more to, to practice it. It's going to be great. I can't wait. Low expectations. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> but it'll be, it, it, we're really looking forward to it. We're in the middle of a series called Golden, which is all about the golden thread that ties the Bible together. We know the Bible can sometimes be complicated to get your head around. If you're a new Christian or you're somebody who's approaching this stuff for the first time, you're like, do I start at the start and read from the start? Like, not really. Not really. You'd think so, right? In a book? Nope. Not necessarily the best way to do it in the Bible. But there is a thread that holds the entire Bible together. That is, there is a people God has called, and it began in Israel, and it continues with the rest of the world. And the golden thread that holds it all together is Jesus, the Savior who was and is and is to come, and through his grace and sacrifice has brought everything in creation together now and into eternity and it's called the gospel which is good news amen good news and so today as we continue going through mostly the old testament to give you guys a bit of old testament literacy i mean i'm sure most of you in your spare time are deep diving into the minor prophets but just in case you're not Tonight, I'll help do that for you in the book of Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. Not to be confused with Zephaniah, because I noticed I'd written up on my whiteboard for next week. Again, thinking I was preaching next week. Prep for Zephaniah sermon. So Pastor Mike up here, one one ministry degree down, no biblical literacy later, apparently. Thought I was preaching on Zephaniah. Zechariah. So here's a little bit about Zechariah. In the words of Tim Mackey, the brains behind the Bible project, Zechariah is a wild ride. It is a book of crazy dreams and flying scrolls and chariots and mountains and horses. Horses that just go all out across the land. And one of them is chestnut colored, which I just think is really like a really lovely touch to have in the vision. Send out the chestnut horse. Like, ah, that's nice. But it's also prominently a book about God's coming kingdom and the work that God is doing in the earth now and still to come. And Zechariah lived in the time of the return from exile. So I've had the privilege of preaching on three different prophets. Isaiah, who prophesied about what would happen in exile. Daniel, who lived and operated in Babylon in exile. And now Zechariah, who is the one who is just after the exile time. So he was probably in Babylon as well. But he becomes part of the migration back to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem, which is in tatters. And their job is to to really 
rebuild the temple in particular. That was a major function. You rebuild the walls and you rebuild the temple and you rebuild the walls so that people can't get in and trash the temple. That's kind of the vision they had. Zechariah was a contemporary of, let me just throw some Bible names out that you may or may not know, Nehemiah and Ezra and Haggai and Zerubbabel. Yes, Zerubbabel is a real name and that's how you say it. He was a contemporary of all these people and he was a prophet from a priestly family and he was known for his prophecies that were quite specific and dated to really specific times just being on the money. So good work, Zechariah. Now, Zechariah and Haggai, though, their main function was to challenge and exhort, that means encourage, the people of Israel to build the temple. Here's why the temple is important. Here's what you've got to get. If you've ever heard the phrase like a temple of the Holy Spirit, or you've been to temple, like this is kind of like going to temple, coming to church together is kind of like that. We don't have to. We've got the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. But when we gather together in corporate worship, the power of God comes passionately, and God believes in unity. There's favor on unity. I'm not talking about it today, but that's actually one of the themes of Zechariah. There's favor in unity. Uh, but when you go to the Jewish temple, the point is that it represents the physical presence of God. So the temple was the key point in Jerusalem, which was the key city in Israel. And the reason is there was where the Ark of the Covenant was and the tabernacle and the very presence of God. The Jews believed that this was where God lived. And when the temple was built, it was an indication of his favor on the people of Israel, right? They weren't super literal about it. They didn't mean that, like, you know, the temple was knocked down so God doesn't exist. It's not like that. But this was like the, the manifest presence of God among his people. You with me? Yeah. Great. All right. So the book itself is split in two. I'm going to go past this pretty quickly. The first half are these... Eight paired off visions, a bit like in Isaiah 61, where I talked about how the structure goes into a point. Uh, and the two in the middle are the most important. Can we just pull that up, I think, Tegan? It should have the, the eight the, uh, before that, the one before that. There we go. The visions. So the two in the middle are really important, okay? Because the first one has to do with the reinstatement of the high priest, the guy whose name is Joshua. So he would be put back in the temple as the high priest. And he's a sign, God says, that his true servant is coming. And he calls this servant the branch of King David, which is like, think of it like a family tree. King David's the, the main uh, trunk, and then here comes the branch coming off. And through this servant, God says, he will take away the sin of Israel in a single day, which is no mean feat. And then the second vision off the back of this identifies the governor of Judah, that's Zerubbabel, who I mentioned before, as being a Holy Spirit-led heir of David. It's one of the many beautiful spots where the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament. And part of this branch, and then there's these two prominent olive trees at the end of this section, and they represent these two holy anointed leaders, the priest, Joshua, and Zerubbabel, who represents the king as the governor, the ruling person. And then there's these two chapters in the middle about covenant faithfulness, where God's people come to God and they're saying, oh, is the kingdom of God coming soon? People came to Jesus and asked this too. And Zechariah, God, through Zechariah, basically throws it back at them and says, are you ready to become the kind of people who are going to participate in God's kingdom. So the people come and they say, we're waiting for the kingdom of God. Is it, is it coming now? Now that we're back in our land and we're building the temple, it's good, right? These are the good things. So the kingdom of God's coming. And God's saying, well, are you ready for what that means? Do you think you are prepared to be my covenant people? Because I've been watching and I have some questions. 
And then part two of the book covers these beautiful images of God's kingdom. They include the coming of the righteous, humble, and victorious king who enters his kingdom riding on a donkey. It includes God's justice confronting evil throughout the nations and God pouring out a spirit of repentance on Israel. And finally, it finishes with this picture of the new city at the end of time, the new Jerusalem and a stream of living water coming out of it. And the big message of Zechariah is this. God's kingdom is coming, and that should motivate us to faithfulness right now in the present. The coming kingdom should affect how we live today. You with me so far? That's the book of Zechariah, with a little less wildness than you'd get if you were reading it. Still, go read it. So where is Jesus in Zechariah? I mean, if you've spent any time in church or even like listening to Christmas carols, you're probably picking up a lot of themes here, right? Quite a lot of places. Zechariah is actually the most quoted book of the Old Testament through the Passion Narratives, the Easter story. And um, so here's Jesus. He's the true faithful prophet who fulfills all of Zechariah's prophecies and sees the kingdom of God come. He is the true high priest, Joshua, who takes away all the sin in a single day. And by the way, Joshua and Jesus are the same name in Hebrew. And he, of course, he is the true king who enters Jerusalem on a donkey to take up his throne in Jerusalem, but also to reign forevermore. This is the work of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. These three images in the Bible, he does them all in one, all in Zechariah. But there's one other important image in Zechariah, and this is the image I want to focus on today. An image that's through the whole book, and an image that Jesus really liked, and that is the image of the shepherd. The shepherd. Now, You know the shepherds, they're the ones who usually in the Christmas play are the kids that aren't as interested in taking the major parts. Like you've you've got the kids who are like, please give me a speaking role. All my children, incidentally, are those kids, whether they get them or not. They're like, I know I'm a shepherd, but could the shepherd speak? Like, please just, just be a shepherd. But then you get the other kids who they're like, you know, they're like 18 months old and the parents are like, oh, well, either a sheep costume or a shepherd. Can we just sit you on stage? And you'll wander off. Chances are a shepherd, if you actually give them the crook in the Christmas play, are like, what can I do with this giant stick while everyone's trying to watch the Christmas play? Some, some mayhem will ensue, which is why we all love the kids' Christmas play. That's the best part. But... It's very important for the language of Israel. Shepherds were a huge part of the language. Psalm 23, how does it start? The Lord is my shepherd. Right. In Isaiah 40, God is spoken of as tending to his flock like a? Yep, yep, yep. You should be able to get this by this point. In Ezekiel 37, God says there is only one? Shepherd. Yes. In Micah 5, there's a prophecy that somebody from Bethlehem will come to? Shepherd his people from Bethlehem. Hint, hint. So it's all, it all comes together. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus clearly takes on this language for himself. In 1 Peter, Peter keeps using this language of shepherd and the chief shepherd to refer to Jesus. Hebrews 13, author does the same. Revelation, they bring it all together, and they go, you know, the Lamb of God, Jesus, he will also be the shepherd. The Lamb will be shepherding. You like what I did there? I brought it together. And John's like, whoa, God, cool. And of course... Who were some of the first witnesses to the birth of Jesus? Shepherds. Shepherds who watched their flocks by night. It's a beautiful thing and the symbolism is really, really clear. We are the people of God. It's like we're his sheep and he's our shepherd, caring for us, loving us. But we rarely stop to think about the little things in these passages, like the shepherds watching their flocks in Luke. Why were they watching them by night? Like, don't sheep sleep? Don't shepherds sleep? Like, when, when do they sleep? 
Because during the daytime, surely they have to watch them. Are they on a rotation system? Is there like a clock punch? Like, do they use an app? I don't know. I don't know. Isn't that overkill? Well, here's why. And here's why it's worth asking these questions. Because not all things are created equal. Not every opinion is equally valid. Not every idea is equally good. And not all shepherds are created equal. And that brings us back to the teaching text today which you may have noticed did not exactly overflow with positivity. It was not the most joy-filled teaching text we've ever had. Woe to you worthless shepherds. Today's teaching text is an excerpt from chapter 11. And in chapter 11, God is trying to help us catch this idea of the idea of a shepherd to use it about his vision for the future of the whole world. And he uses this shepherd to describe leadership. Now, we hear that in Paul's letters as well. If you've ever done any kind of leadership stuff in the church, often we talk about the five-fold ministry. You ever familiar with that? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and shepherds. Or you may have heard that word used differently as pastors. Same word, poimen in the Greek, means pastor or shepherd. And so shepherds care for their flocks in the way that pastors are meant to care for their churches, so if you haven't felt cared for by me, that's because I'm not a shepherd, I guess. I don't know. Don't make me think about that. But most of the kind of shepherds that God is talking about in this passage are not pastoral at all. In fact, the Bible calls them worthless and foolish. Some translations describe them as evil. Here are some of the phrases in the teaching text about shepherds. He will not care. The shepherd will not care for those who are perishing. They will tear off their hooves They will devour the flesh of the fat sheep. Not exactly a positive context for the shepherd. Now, we know, though, it's not about eating the lamb. Lamb was the key element in the Passover, the Jewish main celebration. So we know it's okay for the Jewish people to eat lambs. So it wasn't about eating the lamb. It was about the care for the sheep. It was about the nurture. What are the shepherds actually doing? There's something that God wants to tell us about leadership through this. Something about we are meant to catch as followers of Jesus, about what it means to be shepherds or not be shepherds, to be shepherded or not be shepherded. And that's really, really critical. So what makes a shepherd evil? This is the last bit. I'm going to be semi-sticking to the script and then I am going to go rogue. I think given that shepherd and pastor are the same word, we need to just go straight to the elephant in the room and talk about the evil we have seen in pastoral ministry over the last decade or so. Like as, as a pastor, I cannot tell you how just, I don't even have the words, disgusting is probably the best word. Every time there's something else coming up in the news, so-and-so has failed morally, so-and-so has stolen money from their church, so-and-so has slept with their secretary. And it just goes the whole gamut. You've got the people that are just making foolish decisions and they've maybe set some bad boundaries and they just, they've just made some foolish decisions. Then you've got people who morally fail, who out and out sin intentionally, and it's really, really bad, and it's ruined everything. And then you get people who do the same thing, but systematically, using their power on purpose to create a structure where, where people are basically led into just abuse. And nowhere was that more horrific than things like Ravi Zacharias, and of course, the Royal Commission into Institutionalized Child Sexual Abuse. That should not have been a sentence anyone ever had to say. It's horrific. And on behalf of the church, if you've never heard us apologize, I apologize. It is unacceptable. It's unacceptable in every way. It's unacceptable for human beings at all. It is doubly unacceptable 
because there is something about us who are in pastoral ministry and that we're meant to be held to a higher account, and we are. Here's why. We're meant to be following Jesus, not just in our lives, but for a living. We are meant to take this so seriously that we have devoted our entire lives not to being on a stage, but to the following of Jesus. And when we institutionalize and incorporate and traditionalize abuse, we have taken something that's meant to be servant of all and created a structure that just serves us to the destruction of other human beings. And that is horrific. And God will judge us for that. Us, not you. Us. This is why the book of James says, not many of you should wish to be teachers, for you'll be judged more harshly. And you think, oh, just by us in the seats, because I do have opinions. Like, I mean, yes, a bit, but also by God. We will come before Christ. And Jesus will not just say, what have you done with the stewarding of your life? He will say, what have you done with the stewarding of those people I place in your care? And for those people who have not just sinned, like we all sin, right? Like if someone cuts me off in traffic suddenly and I slam on the brakes, words that I would prefer not to say may slip out my mouth. And I would prefer not to say them. Like, like I'm really anti that. I'm just being real. Just being honest here. Sometimes I yell at my kids and they don't deserve it. Let's, let's just be real about how life works. That stuff is sin. It is. But it's also not the same as repeatedly codifying sin and deliberately using that in order to consolidate power. That's evil. And that's why I think there are these differences between foolish, oh, I'm just doing something really, really dumb. I set some bad boundaries and now it reflects poorly on the whole church. Or worthless, oh, I've slept with somebody who's not my wife and now I'm, that's it, I'm done. Or evil which is I am systematically abusing my power for my benefits. There are differences to these, but we will be held accountable. Now, why am I talking about that? Mostly because I just wanted to repent on behalf of the church to anyone who had been hurt by somebody in pastoral ministry who had abused their power in any way. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry if you have ever felt that church hurt. It is real. Sometimes it's overblown, I get it but sometimes it is very, very real, and I'm so sorry. And if you need some prayer later or to talk through some stuff, I'd love to. But I also wanted to do it because most people, it is not pastoral abuse that they're wrestling with as they search for the wisest shepherd in their life. I wanted to address that first because I want to take the log out of our eye before we look at the specker around the world. Let's talk about some of the stuffs, the distinctives that we hear in Zechariah about what make for a false shepherd. I want to zip through this fairly quickly and then get to some of the good stuff that I think God's got for us. Is that all right? Yeah. I know it's warm. Stay with me for like 10 minutes and we'll get there. All right. What makes for a false shepherd? The first thing is a false shepherd makes false promises. This is a really big thing in Zechariah. God is going off on false prophets and false promises. So in um, leaders like Zerubbabel and Joshua are honoured, but where are we? Zechariah 13, there it is. God condemns false prophets. That is prophets who say these sweet sounding lies and then cannot deliver on them because they're making them up. You ever voted for somebody who, do, who did that? Right? Are you, are you really going to fix the ramping crisis? Are you really going to lower the cost of living? Uh, are you really going to make taxes more beneficial for us? Like, let me, hear me in this. I'm not 
taking aim at any one political party in particular. What I do want you to hear is if that you are somebody who is passionate about politics, there are two things you need to hear. Number one, if you vote Liberal, Labour, Greens, any of, any of the minor parties, I forget, the Nationals, the Independents, no political party represents Jesus. Even the supposedly Christian ones. I mean, frankly, often I will try and vote for it so they can have a voice in the Senate. They probably align with me in some ways more than other parties. But however... They do not represent Jesus. They are a political party. No political party represents Jesus. If you're a member of one of these parties, God bless you. Here's the other thing I would like to say. We need to be politically active people. We need to be thoughtful and discerning and active. Just know that your political party of choice will not save you and will not save this country. We need to vote. We need to be active. We need to communicate with our politicians. We need to pray for them. We need to support them. We need to cheer them on and critique them when necessary, preferably directly to them, not to a third party social media or to our friends. But they will not save this country. They will not build a kingdom that lasts. They will only build a kingdom that helps them get into the next electoral cycle because that's what it is geared for. The whole system is set up for them to create promises that are only for three years, right? Like, I'm not not trying to take aim at anybody. This is what the system is set up for. Very few people get voted in on the basis of something they say they'll do over 10 years. Very, very few. Because we vote for people who will do what we want now. We're thinking short term. So we're part of the problem here too. Politicians will always be false shepherds because they want to make promises that appeal to you more than they want to make promises they can keep. They are trying their best. I know several good-hearted people who want to serve their community, but they will not build the kingdom of God. Here's the second thing. A false shepherd always moves in the prophetic. You like that? No, it's pretty bad, but I'm a... Thank you. Thank you very much. That's probably the kind of applause it deserved. Uh, A false shepherd will always ask at the end of the day, what can I get out of this? What's in this for me? So the kind of false shepherds I think, I think about here are, for example, um, like social media stuff here, like influencers, who go, I want to tell you what to do, right? But at the end of the day, I'll change my mind if it gets me more subscribers, more views, and more sponsorships. Because that's what they're there for. That's what the system is geared towards. So end of the day, if you're putting your trust there, and so many of us are putting our trust in YouTube and TikTok for our actual news, I was watching, a friend of mine showed me a clip last night, a younger guy, and he's like, hey, you should see this. It's a guy in a nurse's outfit talking about healthcare. I'm like, how do I know any of this is true? (laughs) Like, he's just a guy wearing scrubs on TikTok. I don't know if this is real. You don't know if this is real. But you were showing me this to go, here is a fact you need to know. And that's concerning. That is really concerning. Fact check what you are getting into because false prophets are just going, what can I get out of this? What can I get out of this? Let me build my brand. One of the great great false prophetic things we do in this era is brand building. We all build a personal brand to some level. You know what I mean by that? We wear a mask in front of ourselves. It's something that we project to other people. Even on Be Real a little bit. Be Real is a little bit better. I mean, if I see Chelsea sitting at her desk on a computer doing absolutely nothing at all one more time with Sam looking absolutely miserable in the background for having to be in the B-reel, I mean, I actually really enjoyed that, that bit. I find it very amusing. But it's real. But it, it, we're always putting a mask up in front of ourselves, right? 
We're always trying to project something to other people, what we would prefer to be seen. You know what the Greek term for that is? Hippocrates. To wear a mask. That's where we get the word hypocrite. To wear a mask. So a false shepherd will always be motivated by the benefit of themselves. A true shepherd is motivated by the benefit of others. Here's the third thing. False shepherds are motivated by self. So not just for profit, but anytime something comes that could be dangerous, they're gone. Think of somebody who takes all your investments, gets you to put money in, declares bankruptcy, and then walks out with money in their pocket and leaves all the investors bankrupt. That's the kind of thing I'm thinking of. Think of big tech going, how can we get money out of this? But at the end of the day, you are crushed and isolated and alone. Yeah, online community, it's going to be great. And it's leaving us more lonely than ever before. This is what I mean. We used to have... uh, Look, beware a leader. Yeah, this is worth saying. I won't go rogue here. (laughs) Beware a leader that blames the system and that doesn't take responsibility. So... You know, I'm tempted to make a joke about me preaching on short notice with Jacob here, but I won't. But beware a leader that says, oh, the reason for this is because this is happening, not because I haven't led it where it needs to go. If there's a failure in an organisation, it rests with the leader, ultimately. It doesn't matter what the failure is, really, because the leader at the top is responsible for it. If there's a failure in Jared's ministry area, he's responsible. And who's responsible for that? Jen and I because we lead Jared. Technically, Jen's his line manager. uh, So, (laughs) See how I avoided responsibility there? That's a sign of false leadership, false shepherding. Anytime people choose to devoid themselves of responsibility. So take this for an example. We used to have an ethos in this world, particularly in the West, of women and children first. Why? It was an ethos of self-sacrifice among masculinity. Now, whatever you think of that, I'm not really that interested. There was a vision of manhood that says to be a man means to be sacrificial towards others. Now, what it means to be a man is blurry at best and toxic at worst. The visions we have of manhood are no good. And frankly, I think the visions we have of womanhood aren't much better. There is something missing when we build it on a false kingdom and not on a true kingdom. A true shepherd lays down their life to protect the sheep. Why were the shepherds watching their flocks by night? Because there are predators. And a true shepherd watches and lay down their life, puts themselves on the line for the sake of the sheep. And finally, number four, and uh, Keys, you can come back up. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Jared. A, A false shepherd points to a false kingdom. That's what all this comes towards. A false shepherd points to a kingdom. Beware of anybody who is presenting something that seems too good to be true. Hey, just take this pill and the weight will just fall away. I don't think so. Just do this and people will love you. I don't think so. Work out like this and you'll get your dream husband, your dream wife. No, you won't. Systems lie to you. And the more perfect it seems the more likely it is to be a false system. So what we do, the problem what we have is that everyone in the world is is kind of veering around one main message, right? Can I tell you what the message is? You know it when I say it. 
It is this. Every, every philosopher and thinker and lecturer and TED Talk person and, and tech guru, whoever they are, and your mate and your family, we are all giving some version of this. If you just follow my advice, I'm going to teach you to be true to yourself and then you'll discover what to do. And that is leading us straight down the path to hell. So what we try and do, and it's all done mostly with the best intentions, sometimes not, mostly with the best intentions. We're trying to build a utopia. I was really interested reading the results of the Victorian election this morning and the language Dan Andrews used, and I'm just going to leave what I think about Dan Andrews off to the side, of faith. He talked about we had faith in our restrictions, faith in our science, faith in the way we lead. So that's really interesting. They're taking faith and putting it on a secular utopian vision. A utopian vision is when we build something that is not on God, on everything else, and try and make it work. And the reality is what is called a dystopia, when everything that is intended to be utopian ends up being twisted the other way around. That's what happens when we remove God from the center of creation. A true shepherd points to the true kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this is a kingdom that promises more in the long term and offers less in the short term. So let me finally get back to Jesus. Because obviously Jesus is the true shepherd, right? Why? Why is he different? Why is he the good shepherd? That's what he calls himself in John 10. I am the good shepherd. He's speaking to crowds on the Sabbath and he's, and he's drawing from Zechariah chapter 10 and it's this dramatically different vision of leadership. This is what he says. Jesus says he calls us by name. He knows us. He knows you. Did you know that? He knows each and every one of you. He doesn't just go, my church, and look vaguely over the top of your head. He knows you, each of you, Beth, Sue, Min, Andy. He knows you by name. That's Jesus. He says we will know his voice. When he speaks, we'll know that we will have life in abundance and that he will lay down his life for his sheep. And then, even more dramatically, he will take it up again. He will not only lay down his life for his sheep, he will live for them too. See, friends, where evil shepherds promise the world but steal, kill and destroy, Jesus comes and he promises trouble and offers deliverance. Jesus comes, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. How many of us have tried to follow Jesus faithfully and gone, why is this so flipping hard? Like, aren't, isn't it meant to work better when you're a Christian? Like I listened to a preacher once who said I'd get rich if I was a Christian. Like, that's the wrong kind of preacher. That's, stop, get off TikTok. In this life, you will have trouble. Jesus promises it. How does he know? Well, he got crucified. That's one way. Fairly good prediction. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so when he comes as the good shepherd, he says, listen, there are false shepherds out here. People that try and jump in by the corner of the pasture. I'm at the gate, Jesus says. He says, I'm not just the shepherd, I'm the gate to get into the pasture. And he says, there are thieves and robbers trying to jump the fence and convince you to get out by the back. They're trying to convince you that there is another vision of this world that is better than my vision. You can do what you like, but let me tell you, you've got to come in and out by the gate. Because if you don't, it will lead you to death. 
He will steal your hope, kill your dreams, destroy your future. Anything that is against the work of Jesus is the work of the enemy, whether on purpose or accidentally. But Jesus says, but I come so that you can have life and life in abundance. And then He proves it by dying for us. Why do we need a good shepherd? Because every other vision of life we are given destroys us. And only the good shepherd allows us to find our pasture. And mate, this is the thing that just, it just holds me so close. Listen, listen. Jesus says this in John 10, 9. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, they will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Come in, go out, find pasture. What does that mean? Well, it means that if we want to, we can come in and and spend time together and and nurture ourselves in our life. And we can go out and be in the world because that's the rhythm of life. We meet on a Sunday. We cheer each other on. We pray for one another. We prophesy over each other. We mourn with those who mourn. We celebrate with those who celebrate. And then we go back out and we take the presence of God into the world. Monday invading, right? That's part of it. But there's also something else. There's something the Good Shepherd gives that no one else does. And as I was just praying and reflecting and thinking, oh God, I like, you know, like poor Jacob, this is not his fault, right? He got sick. There's nothing you can do. But I'm like, oh, two days, this sucks. Because <laughs> I, I just want it marinated better than this. It's like, God, you, I need you to turn up. I need you. I'm sorry I haven't done better. I'm sorry I haven't spent more time. I'm sorry for the time I was, well, not the bit where I was watching Australia when last night that was pretty good, but the other times I was watching soccer when I could have been writing sermon. And I just sense God saying, just, you need to stop. I have a grace for you that you don't have for yourself. I have a mercy for you. When we come in and go out and find pasture, we're finding the grace of God. And God extends that freely. He is not waiting for you to get in the pasture and sit in your chair and go, now I'm a good person. He, he doesn't care. He loves you wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you've been through this week. He is for you, not against you. His heart overflows with mercy for you. The image of God I love in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the father who runs, runs to the runaway son. But he's also the father that goes out to the judgmental older brother and says, just come in the party. I love you. This party's for you too. And maybe you're here and this is all brand new to you and, and this, is, this might be you come to Jesus a moment. We all need one. We all need one. We all need the good shepherd and and to know and say, you are my good shepherd and there is no other who can compete. But maybe you have just been running yourself into the ground trying to prove yourself to God or to yourself. And God's saying, it's time to step into the unforced rhythms of grace. This is what Eugene Peterson says in his translation of Matthew 11. You might've heard it before. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out in religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. See, Jesus, he says, follow the way of Jesus. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He says, just walk with me. Follow me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. One other time, Ben, you you can come back up. Uh, One other time we see this word shepherd used, lots of others, but one I want to talk about. In Matthew uh, chapter 9, Jesus is surrounded by crowds and it says, the Bible says he has compassion on them as if they were sheep without a shepherd. Do you know what a sheep is without a shepherd? Lost, vulnerable, confused, hurt, desperate. Jesus is here, friends. Arms open wide, the good shepherd, full of grace. And you might be full of self-loathing and self-pity and and fear and, and all sorts of things. And Jesus says, relax. Just turn away from that stuff. Put it down. Come to me. Come to me. Why don't you stand? And as we come into a moment of worship to finish, I want to invite you to be prayed for. I just sense God is longing to minister through his Holy Spirit tonight, through his grace. So I wonder if you're comfortable. Would you just close your eyes and just put your hands out in front of you like this? It's just a gesture of surrender and a gesture of receiving what God has. Don't worry about the person next to you. Don't worry about me. This is about what God has. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Sometimes we get so tired trying to build the world in our image that we forget that you've already built it in yours. We try so hard to overcome in life that we forget you've already overcome the world. For those that are today just wrestling with the peace and mercy and grace that you have to offer, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on them right now? Right now in the name of Jesus, I believe God is pouring out His Holy Spirit on His people. He loves you. He is for you. Some of you, you just, you just got to stop fighting. You got to stop proving yourself to God. He loves you already. He loved you before you ever did anything. At your worst, He loves you just as much. His mercy is for you. His grace for generations. Generations. I just believe there's some people in this room today. God is convicting you of His love. His love for you. God loves you. You personally. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for those that are just desperate to drink from that living water we talked about. Would you pour out your spirit on them? Hallelujah. 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 In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.